This morning's scripture comes out of the book of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 51 and 52. Jesus said to them, Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he said to them, Therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out his treasure, brings out of his treasure things new and old. Thank you for the scripture reading. I did choose that one because I like the part about bringing things out that are new. We all like that. Some of us don't as much like the other part, bringing things out that are old. Well, one of the things, one of the reasons we do archaeology and we study archaeology and we're talking about archaeology today, because it's so old, we want you to feel younger. That's our purpose. That's our goal in all of this. Thank you, uh, Pastor Mark uh, and Colette. I think she'll be here this afternoon uh, for the invitation to be here and for this long planning (laughs) that it took to get here and for a chance to talk about these toys. Uh, No, these important artifacts uh, that we deal with. Um, What I want to do for our worship service is to talk about one of these artifacts and think about how many biblical lessons we can find. You'll see the title uh, behind me, uh, something old and something new. Um, We could could also talk about the other title. And I was so impressed, Mark, to see your name giving the sermon today. I was was thinking that was going to be interesting. Do you want to do this together? Should we? uh, No, okay. So, but in, in, in the bulletin, the title, uh, One Artifact and Many Biblical Lessons. So we can go with either of those titles. And what I'd like to do is choose one. And some of you were here earlier for the Sabbath school and helped us find out about these artifacts. So a quick, a quick look at some of these, and then you help me decide, okay, which one we should talk about. So... We have one that I didn't mention, Uh, several of you asked about it when you came up, was this shell. It's a Murex shell, a Murex snail found in the eastern Mediterranean out of which are are pulled the innards and in the innards is a little organ that is made up of strong purple dye. It takes 500 of these and the amount of purple in those shells to make one garment that is a nice garment. Um, think about anybody in the New Testament connected with purple? Lydia, seller of purple. So she must have been fairly wealthy because she was handling extremely expensive things. That's an interesting thing. We have all of these lamps. We, we could talk about the lamps, right? Um, we have a chalice like this for, that we could talk about for, for worship. We could, we could do that. We could make, we could make a lot of, of applications there. We have material connected to sewing. We have connected, a material connected to worship and to how it is people survived in antiquity. So we've got some clay stuff. We've got some stone stuff. We've got some glass stuff over here. Uh, metal stuff somehow got left home. 
When we got here, I did not find the, the metal one. So I wish we had it because it had some, well, it's, it's, it's weaponry. So I'm not quite so disappointed that uh, we don't have weapons in church. But uh, in any case, uh, that's part of our archaeological record too. So what do you think would be a good artifact to talk about for church? Think about the artifact and its biblical lessons that we might learn. What do you think? What would you suggest? Anybody for a lamp? Okay, I see some lamp voters, some voters for lamps. Okay, uh, okay, others, other suggestions? What about something glass? These are really nice, right? Okay, I see some things there, some glass. What about some things I did not show this morning, but I'm going to talk about this afternoon. What about a broken piece of clay with writing on it? from ancient times. These are used at the times, 7th, 8th centuries BC, times of the prophets and so on. Would that be a fun thing to talk about? Okay. What about a cooking pot? Anybody into cooking pots that we should kind of learn some lessons? I see a cook over here. <laughs> what about, that one has to have to be careful with that. What about something stone like this grinding mortar, okay? Now, these would use in your kitchen a lot. Uh, they wouldn't have a lot of uh, artifacts, but you, you'd, be, you'd go for the stone uh, mortar here. What if we decide... Okay, I've already decided. Uh, what if we decide... Thank you so much for your votes. Uh, just, it, it was so persuasive. Uh, to, to see your votes. What if we decide, though, to go with the stone, okay? So I'm, I'm taking this little girl's suggestion over here. There were, there's a couple stones here that we did not uh, share and talk about this morning, but we will during church. This stone is, it's a small one, although it's heavy. It's made out of basalt. And we talked about grinding with these stones and getting the grit into the bread and then onto your teeth and so on. Um, so this one is the lower grinding stone. There are some that are as, as massive as a table. There are some that are this big uh, that are grinding stones. We found one in a house that we excavated that had been on the second story, and when the house was destroyed by a fire, it had fallen down upside down near the floor. But that was a massive one. That was a huge one. Um, we didn't even recognize it on the, on the backside. In fact, one of those mistakes archaeologists make, seeing a stone, it doesn't look like much, and so to get it out of the way, we could either get some help and moving it, but some of these are hundreds of pounds, uh, or you could take a sledgehammer to it. And so we started taking a sledgehammer to it when we realized this was a lower grinding stone that had been used in this house that had been destroyed about 1200 B.C., so we thought about that. That's a big one. This is a smaller one. And then its partner, its companion, is this stone, which is known as an upper milling stone. These two stones together were absolutely primary for everybody's house. You don't find a house without these stones. And these stones are used with each other. Did you hear the tinkling? Okay. And so here's, here's the use of these. I, had, I sometimes put some grain on here, but I didn't want to do that for today. 
Do you hear the sound of that? Uh, this happens before every meal. You know, we do our bread shopping, right? What? Once a week? Put it in the fridge. It's still good at the end of the week. But if you need to make the bread at every meal, to start a fire, but you have to have something to, to, to grind the grain with. You've got the grain stored in the back room in a storage container, sometimes this size, sometimes bigger, okay? We've already decided this was for lentils. Who decided that for us? Somebody did back here. So we, we do have the storage jars, but we have the grinders. These are essential for life. If you're thinking about what you absolutely have to have in your new kitchen, what would you choose? Dishwasher, oven, microwave. You need one of these, folks. You just have to have one of these. So if we talk about life in Bible times, and we talk about what people are doing in their homes, we can actually do what archaeologists call gendering work. We can gender work. Uh, we do it in a number of different ways. And one of them is to realize that women are the ones who did this, did the grinding. Uh, men and women did the, the, well, men did the planting, caring for grain. Uh, men and women, family, kids, everybody did the harvesting. It's the women who did this, okay? We, we, can, we can gender this task. So women were busy doing this. And you had to have it. You couldn't be without it. So if that's true, if that's true for ancient life, that you had to have as part of your kitchen furnishings a lower grinding stone and an upper milling stone, would there be anything in the Bible that might be related to these artifacts? That's my question, okay? So what we're going to do, I'm, I'm keeping these gloves on because I'm handling these artifacts. You might have wondered what kind of disease I had when I was standing up here before. But I keep these on when we're handling artifacts. Um, but let's, what I want to do is have, uh, with some slides, we are going to look at some biblical texts. We're going to start at the beginning of the Bible, the earliest reference in the Bible to grinding or milling. Okay? That's what we're going to do. And then we're going to end up in the last book of the Bible. So we're not going to stay in the biblical order the whole way through, but we are going to start with the earliest reference, which was, let me see if this is going to work for me. Oh, I need to turn this on. Do I? On. That on helps. Okay. So Exodus um, 11, and I can almost see this. So I'm going to move up a little closer to you. hope it's, you're okay with that. So here is a text uh, about grinding and about a mill, okay? So thus says the Lord, and you'll remember where this story comes from. About midnight, I will go out through Egypt, every firstborn. So what is this story referring to? The exodus out of Egypt and the Passover and so on. So every firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne. So we've got the high end, right? I mean, that's, that's what this literary device is supposed to do, right? Take us from the high end to the low end, all right? So what's on the low end? From the, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the female slave who is behind the handmill. All the way across, the firstborn of everybody, including the livestock. The animals get caught up 
in human mischief, don't they? Um, Jonah, remember the story of Jonah? The animals were part of that, of that too. So, but what we have in this text, the earliest one in the Bible, the first one to be mentioned, uh, that has to do with milling or with grinding, is a female slave who is grinding at the mill. This covers everybody. This is the first major event of biblical history. Not the first thing that happened, but theologically, the Exodus is the birthplace, the birth time of Israel. It's the Exodus. The end of Israel will also come to, as we're talking about this, is with the Babylonian exile. We'll actually see more about that this afternoon. I've got several inscriptions from the time of the Babylonian exile and what the kings, the foreign kings, are saying about Israel, what the neighbors are saying. So we'll talk about that more then. But we have these two. These are the bookends of Israel's theological life. The exodus out of which was formed an Israel consciousness about God, covenant, all of those things. The exile was the end of all of that. Everything turns on its head. So biblical history between those is what we'll be thinking about as we move to these different passages. So let me move to another one. And this one is interesting. Um, another story uh, also tied to the Exodus, but now in the wilderness, right? So, uh, but now our strength is dried up. There's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Manna, the word in Hebrew means, what is this? So they're standing around looking at this, what is this stuff? And they're wondering what to do with it. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its color was like the color of gum resin. The people went about and gathered it. They ground it in mills, notice, beat it in mortars. We have mortars here too. So we've got the implements. We've got what they used, okay? Um, and then they boiled it in pots and made cakes out of it, and the taste of it was like the taste of cakes ba baked with oil. We actually have several of the pieces mentioned there. We've got the milling equipment, we've got a mortar, and we also have a cooking pot. So we have the kinds of things they used to turn this, what is it, into something edible. That's the second time the reference to milling or grinding shows up in the Bible. Now let me move to another one, which is going to take us to a different sort of world. No one shall take a mill or an upper milling stone. I should actually have put that in red too, the mill. A mill or an upper milling stone uh, in pledge because that would be taking a life in pledge. Now think about that for just a minute. We're looking at this <clears throat> as an artifact. It's interesting, right? And it's interesting to have in the Squim Church, right? Um, you know, it's, it's not often that you have this kind of thing around. Um, so it's, it's interesting. But it's more than interesting. According to the law in Deuteronomy, these two stones are the life of a person. You take, if, you, if somebody owes you something and you go to, to collect a pledge that it will be paid, 
don't take the millstones. They need it to survive. That is their life. Don't touch it. This now has taken on more significance than simply something to, to grind up what, what is it, like manna. This now has become life and death. You take it in pledge from somebody who owes you something, and you may have called, caused that person's death. That's how serious we're talking about this. This law comes in the context in Deuteronomy 24 of other laws. There's one that says if you have taken uh, a pledge from a householder because they owe you something, go to the door. It's an interesting thing to say. I don't know why it's this way, but go to the door and remind the householder of the pledge. Bring out the pledge. Uh, don't go into the house to get the pledge. Don't barge in there and go over to a shelf and grab it. Let the, let the homeowner bring it out to you. Then there's another one in the same chapter that says, don't, um, don't take a poor person's garment in pledge past sundown. So now there's a little bit of a time limit. Don't touch these for pledges. These are life. For a poor man's garment, if this person owes you and you're taking something in pledge and you take his, his, his coat, make sure you get it back to him by sundown because this is the only warmth this person has. So now there's not only something to do with life and death, there's something about how it is we treat the poor, how it is we treat other people. All of that springing from millstones. Okay, next one. Ah, somebody said something about judges. So can't, you really can't have a sermon without something from judges, right? Or, or maybe not. <laughs> not everybody's as excited about judges as I am. I mean, I'm one who did for my uh, dissertation, for my doctoral work, the book of Ezekiel. Now, if you can find anybody who kind of readily opens up to the book of Ezekiel for devotional reading every day, you need to show that person to me because that isn't typically how we approach Ezekiel, nor Judges. Judges isn't the, the most fun reading. And I've always advised people not to read Judges too close to bedtime because there's so much there that is bloodshed and uh, tears. Joshua as well, but uh, Judges too. But there's a story with an in incredibly sort of dark, humorous turn in it. And it's the story of Abimelech. Abimelech is not one of the judges. The judges are Gideon and Ehud or Ehud, um, Deborah, um, Samson. You know, so you've got this, this list of, of judges. Abimelech is not one of them, but he is the son of one, and he thinks that his father should have been a king, not a judge. And since his father was not turned into a king, he thought he should take the mantle and become king. And so his name is Abimelech, which means my father is king. Why don't you treat me like one? You know, I'm royalty here. Come on. Um, and so he stirs up all kinds of stuff. Uh, there's a good reason he doesn't become a judge, because he doesn't behave like one. Um, and he's into mischief all the time. And at the end of the Abimelech story, something happens involving an upper milling stone. Okay, here it is. 
Then Abimelech went to Thebes, not sure exactly where that is, and encamped against Thebes and took it. But there was a strong tower within the city. There's a big stone tower standing up. And all the men and the women and the lords of the city fled to this tower and shut themselves in. And they went to the, to the roof of the tower. So you have to imagine this tower, this stone tower in the middle of this, of this village. And everybody's clamoring to get into the tower and to get up to the roof of it. No, no exactly how high it was. Um, and they fought, uh, but Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it. Came near the entrance to the tower to burn it with fire. But a certain woman, who uses these things? Women. You're not going to hand this over to a man to do. This is a woman's job. This is a woman's implement for use in the kitchen. But this woman saw another opportunity. And so she takes this upper milling stone, this, pretty substantial, and she threw it down on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. The story goes on to say that Abimelech, knowing he was mortally injured, calls upon his, um, his armor bearer to take his sword and thrust him through so that it would never be said of Abimelech that he, was, that he had died at the hands of a woman. Do we remember the Abimelech story for that very reason? Yes? <laughs> Abimelech did not have his wish. Okay, it's dark humor, but it is, um, it's a woman at work with in implements from her kitchen. That's what she had in her hand, and that's what she used. And that happens in the Book of Judges. Sorry about that. Um, Another reason not to read it too close to bedtime, but in any case. Okay, the next one. This one is interesting because it gives us an insight into how the prophets think. You know, the Isaiahs, the Jeremiahs, the Ezekiels, the Amoses, the Hoseas, the Micahs, and so on. This is from Isaiah 31. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. So this is judgment against the leaders of Judah. Right? This is leadership stuff. It is you have who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. Say, so how do I know you have devoured the vineyards? Because I can go into your houses and I can see what the poor once owned that you now have taken from them. Okay? What do you, what do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor. How many ways, according to the Bible, can you use an upper milling stone? You can use it, according to Isaiah, if you are oppressing the poor by grinding their face into the ground. Not only not only the grinding stone, but the crushing. You see the word crushing, crushing my people? It's probably from what we call a, a, a crushing basin for olive oil. 
When you have olives and you harvest them, you bring them into this stone vessel, if you're just doing it domestically, and you have a big stone that you can take, push down on it and twist it and so on, and so it breaks open the olives and then the olive oil will drain out the bottom. Uh, it's a crushing basin, that's what it is. So what Isaiah is saying, why are you crushing the poor and grinding their face into the ground? That's pretty graphic. So now, this grinding stone becomes a symbol of oppressing, of oppression. And it's not alone in the book of Isaiah. All of the prophets had something to say about four categories of people and how it is that people, in, especially people who were in positions to do so, could oppress these four categories. One, widows. Widows were basically without any source of support in ancient Israel. Orphans, also, basically without any source of support. So these were the poor. Then the poor, the economically deprived, just the poor. No reason given for why they're poor. It's just that they're poor. Those three groups plus the migrants, plus the aliens, okay? Widows, orphans, the poor, and the aliens. Those are the four categories. They keep coming up. And the prophets are hot onto this. The prophets, yes, they predicted the future, but primarily they had two things to say to ancient Israel. One was, be sure you worship God correctly. Number two was, be sure you take care of the marginalized. Make sure you take care of the poor. And, and to illustrate it, this stone now becomes an instrument of, of oppression. Micah, I think, the, I think the eighth century prophets are the most graphic when they talk about this very issue. Isaiah, we just read. Micah, Amos. Amos is really graphic. Hosea is the other one, but Hosea is more concerned about worshiping God, and the other three more concerned with how we treat people. But in Micah, there's this amazing uh, set of verses in chapter 3, you can read it, about how those in positions of power oppress the poor. And he's so agitated, the prophet is so agitated. Prophets are not people you invite for sleepovers. They are not people you invite to your birthday party. They are serious, and they have something strong to say. And we should stand, step back and let them say it. And Micah, who is so agitated about how the poor are being treated, that he gets the order wrong. He says, you flay the skin off of the poor, off of my people. You flay the skin off. You chop them up. You eat their flesh. You throw them into the cauldron to cook them. It's all eating. It's all eating metaphor. But he gets it out of order. He's so agitated that he gets eating them before they're even cooked. So here are these people who are oppressing the poor. You, you flay the skin off of, their, off of their backs. You eat their skin. You chop up their bones. You throw them in the cooking pot, bigger pot than this. You cook them. Um, but he, he gets it out of order, and you're eating them even before they're done. It's a graphic image, which builds on the image with the stone about how it is we treat the poor. So this can become 
an implement of all kinds of things, biblically. But we're not done. We've got a couple more to look at yet. So this one is graphic in a different sort of way. Um, also in Isaiah, addressed now to uh, Babylon, uh, the, the empire that uh, undoes uh, Israel and Judah at the end of their history, at the time of the exile. Come down and sit in the dust, virgin daughter Babylon. Sit down on the ground without a throne, daughter Chaldea. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Okay, this is somebody from the royal family. And people in the royal family do not have to fix food. They don't have to do it. They have people fix the food for them, okay? So you, you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take, your, uh, take the millstones, okay? Grind meal. That's these two, okay? Grind meal, okay? Um, where am I? Okay, grind meal. Remove your veil. The veil of the wealthy evidently was going to get in the way of grinding, so you've got to take that off. Strip off your robe because that's going to make it hard to finish grinding. Uncover your legs. This is getting a little bit problematic. This is saying that grinding is a bit immodest. This is what people do. And you've lived in royalty all the time. And you don't know this, but daughter of Babylon, your day is coming. That's what it is. It's a judgmental speech. It's what we call a speech against the foreign nations. O-A-N. Oracles against the foreign nations. And they show up in all the prophetic books. And we wonder why they're there. In a way, they are there as a way for God to say to his people, look, you've been oppressed by the Babylonians. But the Babylonians, their day is coming. Judgment is coming for them too. It's good news to the Israelites to know that the people who have oppressed them are on their way out. That actually is a theme that runs through the Bible, including, maybe especially, the book of Revelation, to which we will come momentarily. This one is interesting from the book of Ecclesiastes, which is a puzzling book, but I've always found it to be uh, interesting and helpful. So, in the day, this, this chapter starts with, um, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Remember that? Okay. Um, some of us could say that we have kind of gone past the days of our youth. Okay. I'm, I'm staying at 50. I don't know where you are. And I don't know how many times I've been 50. But um, I, 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 want to, I still want to be young. But notice what this text says. Uh, after it says, remember... Um, your creator in the days of your youth. In the days when the guards of the house tremble, the strong men are bent, and the women who grind cease working because they are few, and those who look through the windows see dimly. Does this feel like old age approaching? Is that kind of what the feel you get here? When the doors on the street are shut and the sound of the grinding is low sound of the grinding. I'm going to come back to that, okay? The sound of the grinding is low. And the reason it's low is because there are not too many people in this village who are grinding. Which means what for food preparation? There's not much food preparation going on. Which means what for eating? Not a lot to eat. That's what this is getting to. Okay? The sound of the grinding is low. One rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. An interesting passage in chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes. 
in part informed by the sound of the grinding. Everything is slowing down into slow motion as people age. I guess that's what it's saying. And then even the sound of the grinding is low and slow. At the end of this passage, it says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So is there a way out in Ecclesiastes? There actually is, but we're not, we'll do Ecclesiastes another time. Uh, judges first, though, right? And then, they, okay. So we're, 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 we, we know what we've got to do here. So. Okay, a couple more. This one from Matthew that you will remember. Uh, two women will be grinding meal together. It's not two women who are shopping together. It's not two women who've decided to take a walk in the woods together. It's two women who are grinding because that's where they spent their time. These houses that were built cheek by jowl, right next to each other with common walls, women could sit on the roof with only a parapet separating them, grinding, and they could carry on the gossip for the, for the day. I mean, it's a great opportunity to pass news along. Uh, and this is what they were doing. So two women are grinding a meal together. One will be taken and one will be left. Keep awake, therefore, for you don't know the day your Lord is coming. This is not to set us up for the, for the uh, whole notion of left behind. Uh, or anything like that. But in any case, it does have to do with expectancy. So grinding and stones now signal something about the coming of the Lord too, right? How many lessons are there from grinding stones in the Bible? Well, a couple more. This one is probably not this size of grinding stone. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones, Little ones could be children or little ones could be in the early Christian communities could be new members of your church. Whoever puts a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were fastened around your neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. These are probably these large commercial millstones. Uh, that had a kind of a conical shaped part carved out and it would be set on top of, 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 a, of a cone that's here and you would set it on top of it and then you'd pour, find a way to pour grain in the top and sometimes you'd get animals to turn this massive, these are massive um, uh, grinding stones. So they're not these little ones but nevertheless grinding stones uh, in any case. Okay, a couple more. This one comes, I'm going back to Babylon now, okay? So Babylon is kind of pulled into things in different sorts of ways. But this is addressed to, um, to, uh, to Israel. I will banish from them the sound of mirth. Okay, now let's put all of these things together. The sound of mirth, the sound of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom. So there's a wedding, Right? And the voice of the bride, we're talking about a wedding dinner, a wedding celebration. The sound of the millstones. All of these things are going to diminish. I will banish from them a sound of mirth, gladness, voice of the bridegroom and the bride, sound of the millstone, and the light of the lamp. 
So, the light from this lamp, this is from the time period we're reading about. The light from this lamp is to be banished. The sound of the grinding is to be banished. And what does that mean? It means there's going to be no food for you folks. The flip side of that is when things are good, and you'll see this in a minute, that when things are good, you will hear the sound of the grinding. There's a, a couple of things that happen in, um, in Jordan surrounding hospitality. Um, Bedouin, Carmen and I have visited Bedouin often. On one occasion, I went with several members of our team, our excavation team, to visit in a Bedouin tent, and we were sitting around uh, this fairly large tent uh, on cushions, and the um, Bedouin tent host was going to, who brings you into his tent and says, you are here, you are safe, you are in my care, and that means I'm going to feed you. Uh, so just get ready. Um, and one of the things you, you eat, you, you have before you actually eat a meal, is um, coffee. Now this, is, this is really high octane stuff. Um, it is enough to give you a buzz for about a week. Um, it is pretty high octane, and it's, it's part of the hospitality of the Middle East. And so what he will do is take some coffee beans, he'll mix different kinds, put them in a frying pan and roast them, and then he will take them and put them into the pounder. Um, and then in this pounder, it's a heavy wooden thing, about this big, about this tall, and it has a hole in the middle, lined with metal, and then he has a wooden pounder that he pounds on. And when he does this, a couple of things happen. One is that the coffee beans are ground into a powder that then make them useful. I don't drink coffee. I do there because it's hospitable, but I don't. Um, so he makes it into powder for the coffee. But the other thing he does is announces, as far as that pounder can be heard, coffee's on in 15 minutes. It's hospitality. That's what this is. When there is the sound of the grinding, that means there's a party. That means there's food. That means we can live another day. That means our kids will not go to bed hungry. That's what it means, okay? The sound of the grinding. Two more texts, both of them from the book of Revelation. <clears throat> Toward the end, okay, so we always... We, we like to go to the end of the story, right? To get to the good part. Um, well, there's, there is some good part and there's some not so good. Okay. Um, this is in chapter 18, just before we get to the end of the book. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone. Ah, millstone again, right? You didn't know, probably, that millstones showed up this many times in the Bible, right? And in so many different and varied contexts with so many significant messages to convey. He took up a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, with such violence, Babylon, the great city, will be thrown down. This is, again, a response. This is God has things under control. He will take care of the Babylonians. They've made trouble for you, but not to worry. Um, he will, uh, and will be found no more. And the sound of the harp and the minstrels and the flutists, or flautists, and the trumpeters, will be heard in you no more. And an artisan of any trade will be found in you no more. And the sound of the millstone 
will not be heard in you anymore. And the light of the lamp, we've heard those two things together before, haven't we? The light of the lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in you no more. We've heard those, all those images, right? The bridegroom, the bride, uh, we, we hadn't seen the musical stuff, but we have seen the light and the sound of the, of the millstone. The last text I want to put up here does not have the word millstone in it, but it does have the end of the story. And we will think about millstones as we read the end of the story. Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. It's almost like the text you read, you read, Pastor, as the call to worship today. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Now remember, Babylon has, has disappeared now. Babylon's out. Uh, and how do we know that? Because we can't hear the grinding of the stone. We can't hear the music. There are no bride or bridegroom voices, right? So what happens here? Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb, ah, marriage, ah, what do you do at weddings? Food, that's what you do. You have food, and you have to have grinding, right? Okay, so the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride, right, his bride has made herself ready. To her it has been given, it has been granted to be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure. With the fine linen is the, but for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Not invited to the wedding hall. Not invited to the wedding party outside. Not invited to the place where you're going to go to buy wedding gifts. To the meal to the food, to the place where weddings really happen and where they really matter. And you'll know this, even though it doesn't says it, say it here, but you'll know it because of the negative implications of Babylon. You will not hear the grinding stones in Babylon because they're gone. But we're going to have a party. We're going to have a meal. We're going to have a wedding. We're going to hear from the bride, the lamp, the light. Everything is there, including, I'm going to insert this, the sound of the grinding. 